Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Let me start here. In a profound insight, A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. If Tozer is right, and I think that he is, then our conception of who and what God is lies at the very heart and core of our identity. I think this is interesting for two reasons. Uh, we can have two ways of thinking about this. One is uh, we can simply ask the question, what comes to my mind when I think about God? We did this actually on Thursday night with our midweek discipleship class, and we had a fantastic time reflecting on God's nature and acts and his character. But there's a second way to consider the question, and I think this actually gets at, in terms of reaching above, uh, exploring beneath, and going beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that is to consider what is happening uh, in our minds, or what we are thinking about, when we are unaware of our thoughts about God. We might consider how our manner of life displays what we actually believe about God than necessarily what we would just verbally profess. I mean, you can consider this. Each and every one of us has false views, false ideas about who God is, who we are, and why we exist. Now, we don't hold those intentionally, but the fact of the matter is because none of us is perfect, none of us sees the world perfectly, none of us understands God perfectly, and none of us even understands ourselves perfectly, so we all likely have false concepts about those three things. Uh, I wonder then, when I think about the A.W. Tozer quote, how many of us might verbally assent to truths about God, but really on the back burners of our minds there is a a simmering pot bubbling with bad theology that has the dangerous implications that it might one day overflow into our lives, into our speech, and into our worship. In this sense, then, it might be good to say, not in contrast with what Tozer wrote, but to place alongside what Tozer wrote, the concept that what comes into our minds when we don't realize we are thinking about God may be equally important. If I can give an example of this, I have heard this tragic story many times, and I heard it again this week. And that was that there was a mom, uh, a parent who, wanted, uh, who wants to raise her child in the Christian faith. She wants her child to be at a good Christian school. She wants to go to a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church. And all of that so that her child will know the God she believes and the gospel she believes is good, right, and true— and yet, she also believes that something about her, something about her life or her character or her nature, has wandered too far from God. And so what she hopes and desires for her child, she believes is outside of her own reach. In her motherly love, she wants for her child what she believes is no longer available to herself. It breaks my heart to hear these sorts of tragic false theologies about God and about ourselves. 
but I have heard them countless times before. And so one of the things I want to do this morning is to correct that. I want to do this in effect. I I have uh, four goals for this morning. I want to expand our view of God. In fact, this is the second goal. I actually want to terrify you with the essence and nature of who God is. I want you to be thinking about a God that is so big and so grand and so beautiful that you hesitate to enter into his presence. I want you to feel what Isaiah felt when he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I want to terrify you with who God is. And then I want to amaze you with how he has revealed himself to us. And I want, you to, I want to leave you in effect at the doorstep, at the threshold of worship, so that when the band comes back up here, as we sing two songs, which are uh, in the words of how, uh, how our lead pastor, Jim Roden, would put them, that they are sung from our hearts to God. They are, I, they are me to you songs. I want you then to cross over that threshold by yourself under your own volition and enter into worship, having seen who God is and having seen how he revealed himself to us. And this sounds ambitious. In fact, To tell you the truth, I do not plan on succeeding, just attempting to do these four things. And I say that because I believe something is true about myself, and I need to tell you something I need from you. About myself, I will tell you this, that when God speaks, theologians for years have believed that he has condescended to us, that if we were, in effect, to hear a conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we wouldn't understand it. God is so much higher, greater, and outside of our comprehension that we just simply wouldn't get it. But God, desiring to make himself known to us, condescended to our level. And so when we open up the scriptures, a theologian about 500 years ago said, what is contained in there is true, accurate, beautiful, and good, and yet it is also baby talk. It is our Father in heaven lisping to us infants in the faith that we might understand. And so to tell you something about myself, I stand before you, a simple baby, who has sought to understand what his father is lisping to him, and I seek now just to simply lisp it back to you the best I can. If I fail in my four goals this morning, it is not because the content which I have looked at is insufficient, but because my words are weak. I need you to understand that going in. Now, here's what I need from you. Many of us When we walk in this room, we have so many things which we encounter uh, in our weeks, in our days, in our lives uh, that will fight us and keep us from focusing. Here's what I'm telling you. I need your mind this morning. I need you, whether it's because of something physiological, that your, your mind goes to war with you for focus and attention in this time, I need you to go to war right back to focus. Whether it's because of the simple physiology of a bad night's sleep or not much to eat, I need you to go get a cup of coffee and wake up a little bit. Or whether it's something theological or psychological that you feel like that mother felt when she explained that she did not think something was available to her that was available to her kids, I need you to trust in the words of God this morning. I need you to set aside that which you think hinders you. 
my goal, in effect, for you is I want to set your hearts ablaze with a view of God that is grander than those mountains out there. And in order to do that, or I should say, I should say, uh, the best way to do that is that I am going after your hearts through the hardest road possible. I am going to go straight through your minds. And the reason why I want to do this is I believe that the mind and the heart work in tandem. One of my favorite quotes comes from an author named Blaise Pascal. He was a French thinker, and he said this, Clarity of mind means clarity of passions, too. This is why the great and clear mind loves ardently what it sees distinctly. Oh, sorry, ardently and sees distinctly what it loves. I want you, when you leave those doors this morning, I want you to see God more clearly. And because you see him more clearly, I want you to love him more ardently. I want your loves to be inflamed such that you feel called into the presence of God, that you feel obligated to worship this God, and that in worshiping this God, you kneel in order to serve him. Those are our goals this morning. My goal is to communicate to you what is impossible, I think, to a certain extent, and your goal is to fight for focus so that you can follow. In both of these goals, we need the help of our Savior. So let's pray, and then we are going to jump in. Father in heaven, we have before us an impossible task this morning. Sinful and broken hearts and minds are seeking to know the incomprehensible. Our finite selves are seeking to grasp at that which is infinite in a desperate attempt to understand who we are, who you are, and what you have made us for. Impossible if it were not that before, long before we came to this text, long before I wrote this sermon, you decided to make yourself known to your creation. We are no mere blind men feeling at elephants, hoping to discern the object in front of us. You have spoken to us. You have guided the pens and the thoughts of men to put down in perfect order the truth about who you are. And you, in the fullness of time, sent your Son to live among men that we might know you. All of our knowledge comes from you. And so we ask you to make yourself known to us in greater degree this morning as we look into your word. Open our hearts to believe more truly. Open our minds to understand more fully. And loose my tongue, Lord that I might speak clearly and loose the tongues of my friends, Lord, that we together might sing and profess more vigorously who you are in a short period's time from now. Amen. Now, that introduction may throw some of you off, so I know some of you are thinking, I'm pretty certain we were, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. What did I miss? Or you might be thinking something along the lines of, here's what happens when Jim leaves for three weeks. Tyler just gets on a theological hobby horse. That's not what happened. Well, it's, it's not entirely what happened. The fact of the matter is that we are wrapping up a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can turn them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 43. There's something uh, very serious taking place in this text. And that's why I started with the theological uh, introduction and why we're going to focus to a certain extent on theology this morning. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've worked our way through the Beatitudes. 
we are now looking at how Christ interacts with the law and what he calls us to. And today, we are going to see how God, how Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, explains to us that we aren't people uh, that are good enough, that the standard is much higher than we expect. You know, he's been saying this actually through this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. We weren't good enough people simply because we didn't murder our neighbors. Uh, We weren't good enough people simply because we didn't cheat on our spouses. We weren't good enough people because we, uh, we technically told the truth. We weren't good enough people because uh, we didn't necessarily harm others unless they really deserved it. The fact of the matter is that each of these has been challenging the nature of our hearts in this low standard of good enough that we place in front of ourselves. We set the bar low, easily getting over it, thinking then God will accept us. And Jesus has challenged each one of these, and he said, you may not murder, but you're carrying around ungodly and unjust anger. You may not cheat on your spouse, but your sexual desires have provoked fantasies about others. You may not, manip- or you may not lie technically, but you've been manipulating words to get what you want or what you think you deserve. You may not strike out against other people uh, unjustly, Yet at the same time, you're waiting to get your own, and your thoughts are regularly on revenge. And here, Jesus turns, and he closes the door on any thoughts we might have of being simply good enough. Matthew 5, 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. And here's where the theological reflection this morning comes in. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's start here. The path of salvation and the path of perfection is a path hewn by the perfect character of God. The path of salvation and the path of perfection is a path hewn by the perfect character of God. In other words, in order to understand salvation, in order to walk that path, and in order to understand what we are called to, we need to understand the perfection of God. So what does it mean that God is perfect? In each of the sections we have looked at thus far, Jesus has addressed the nature and purpose of the law. And what his hearers don't know, but what we do is that God's plan and purpose, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, fills out and explains why we strive for an exceeding righteousness. And what we understand is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not historical happenstance, but is actually the outworking of God's character in God's Son in history. Hebrews 1 says it this way, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom 
also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he holds up the universe by the word of his power. After making uh, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God was and is, metaphorically speaking, and literally displaying that Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, was revealing to us what God is really like. When Jesus picks this word up at the close of this section of the sermon, he says that it was perfect. So what does God's perfection mean? It means fundamentally that he is greater than anything else. Listen to what Isaiah says about God in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 18. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and, whom, uh, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, who taught him knowledge, who showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like the drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales." Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness can you compare him? He's saying, God is incomparable. You have nothing in your experience which you can look at and go, yeah, God's kind of like that. He says, no, because you don't know a single thing that simply weighed out the mountains in the palm of its hand or scooped up all of the oceans, rivers, lakes, bodies of water in the other. You don't know a single thing, nor is there anything which ever taught God how to understand, which ever showed God what is right or wrong. And if we were to worship him as the old covenant worshipers did, we could not find the livestock satisfying enough where if we slaughtered them all, if we drained them all of blood, if we threw them on all the trees in the world and burnt them as an offering to our Father, it wouldn't be enough. There is nothing which we have in comparison when we think about God. Isaiah goes on in verses 21 through 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? He says, do you know a king? Do you know a prince? Do you know a world leader? They are nothing compared to God. Do not dare compare God to your kings, princes, presidents. They are but emptiness when, comparison, when compared to God. God is perfect because there is none greater. Neither does God lack anything. God experiences no want, no hunger, no thirst, no weakness. Think about Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, behold, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. 
since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. In a sense, he's saying, what sacrifices would you bring that were not originally from God anyway? You think yourself high and mighty because your hands constructed the temple? Well, I will tell you what, if his glory descended upon that temple, it could not hold him. In the Old Testament, there's a point when God's glory descends upon the temple of Solomon and he fills it so much that smoke manifests in the temple and the priests have to leave because his presence is so intense and so full. And yet the smoke overflows the temple because it cannot hold God. There is none greater. He needs not. He gives abundantly because all the things he is, he is them fully and completely. That is, he, if he possesses an attribute, he possesses it to the extent to which you can actually associate that with him. So it is actually a thought below God to say God is loving. That's not necessarily true when you read scripture. It's not that God is loving. It's that God is so loving, it is so intrinsic to his character, that God is fundamentally love. It's not something he possesses. It is something bound up in his very being. Similarly, God is not simply a possessor of power. He is power. God is not simply the possessor of knowledge. He is the wisdom which constructed the world in the first place. Does gravity exist? Yes, because God is wise. There is nothing we know, nothing we can compare, which God is not more than. He is not simply beautiful. He is beauty itself. He is not simply anything. He does not possess these things like we might possess an object. He possesses them within his very being. The best words that we in our English language have to describe this, and these two fall woefully short, is we can call God supreme, which means he is superior to all others. He is unparalleled and unrivaled in his greatness. The idea of the supremacy of God directs our minds to the fact that he is infinite while we are finite. You know, there's this obsession now with, like, superhero movies. Here's the problem with them. We tend to think of God as simply a greater version of ourselves. He's a superhero like Thor or Superman. No. There's a great point in the uh, first Marvel uh, Avengers movie where one of the characters warns Captain America, don't go out there. They're basically gods. And Captain America, though I am sure the writer of that film did not know what wisdom he put in that character's mouth, said... There's only one God, and I'm pretty certain he doesn't wear a cape. We have nothing by way of comparison. The gods of all other myths and religions are simply man-squared. If we could be greater, we would be them. But no, there is none greater than God. Another word we have is holy. Interestingly enough, there's a near exact sentence in the Old Testament for that you should be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect, except instead of the word perfect, it says, God is holy, therefore you should be holy. That's the word Moses used when he wrote it in the book of Leviticus. And we must not fall into that age-old trap of thinking men can be like God in that sense, like the superheroes I just described. The reason is because God is holy, which fundamentally means set apart, distinct, other than. 
On that note, theologians of the past described God as pure act, which was not intended to depersonalize God as if he's act and he's not relational or anything like that. Rather, the concept that God is pure act is to communicate that he and only he can think, will, and speak things into existence. Theologically, we talk about the world being created ex nihilo, out of nothing. God had no pre-existent material to build all that you see out of, but he simply thought, he willed, and he spoke. And because he is pure act, sovereign in power and glory, it simply was. The word let it be, all that we know, came into existence. Similar to that, in church history, we have the Latin word assay, or in our language, aseity, which means from himself, which communicates the biblical truth that God, unlike anything else, exists as a fact of the universe. That God exists in and of himself. Do you experience gravity, entropy, movement, momentum, motion, any of the physical or scientific laws of the universe? They are not as fundamental as the fact that God exists. Gravity would not exist had God not willed it. Entropy would not exist if that was not his desire. Motion, movement, and momentum would be impossible if it were not for God. All that we know exists because God exists. We see this in God's personal name that he gives to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God simply is. He's a brute fact of our world. In fact, right now I want you to do something to prove to a certain extent how great God is. I want you to embody for me in this present moment every experience you can have. Which means this. In the back of your mind, running right now, are five senses which God designed for you to interact with this world. You can taste, you can touch, you can smell, you can hear, you can see. I want you to take those from off of autopilot in the back of your mind, and I want you to draw them to the front of your mind, and I want you to ask yourself, what do I experience right now? What do I see? A man on stage, I see the architecture. Maybe if you're sitting over here, you see the mountains and the desert scenery. Maybe you see the bodies and the shapes and the people and the colors all in front of you. And think, what do you hear? The sound of my voice. Breath coming in and out of your mouth and nostrils. The creaking of chairs and bodies. What do you feel? Do you taste anything? What do you sense? You cannot pull to the front of your mind no matter how much intellectual power you attempt, all that you experience in any single moment. And yet, all that you experience right now, you experience because God himself holds it together. In Colossians 1, 16 through 17, it says this, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
we can go on about the nature of God. He is a simple being, meaning historically that he has no parts. The reason why that's important is anything with parts can be destroyed. You can take it apart. How many things would you have to pull out of God before he was no longer God? God has no parts. He exists as a holy, binding, unified thing. Which, by the way, means this. Whenever you read the scriptures and you read a story in the Old Testament and you think it displays one piece of God's character, the fact of the matter is that it doesn't. It displays all of God's character simultaneously if we only have the eyes to see. So what of the flood that wiped out the generation of Noah? Is that a story of God's wrath, judgment, justice, his anger towards sin? What if you're Noah? It's a story of grace and mercy and love and kindness as you have no idea how to raise children, how to raise a family in a world which Genesis describes as wicked continually always. And right here, God has provided the solution by judging sin. And why did he leave you? Genesis 5, 9, no, 6, 9 says, For the favor of the Lord was upon Noah. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word favor is translated grace. The grace of God was on Noah. That is why he was spared the floodwaters. You see, any story we pick out, we might see at surface level certain attributes of God, but the fact of the matter is God is simple. He is acting in and of himself always and completely holy with his whole character, his whole being is in all of it. And so we can see his love simultaneously with his wrath. We can see his grace side by side with his justice. God is unchangeable. For change in God's nature would imply that God isn't perfect. If he's perfect, then any change in him must be away, move away from perfection. If he's not perfect and he changes towards perfection, then he wasn't perfect to begin with. Therefore, God must always have been, always will be perfect, unchangeable. He's impassable. This means he does not experience human emotions as we experience them. It might sound odd. We want to grab a hold of God and say, but doesn't he, doesn't he live like I live? Doesn't he experience how I experience? Doesn't he weep over the things that I weep over? The fact of the matter is that God does not experience them in the same way that we do. God is not given to bouts of rage nor does he not do the right thing or the wise thing simply because his heart is infatuated with love. No, God is always wise, and he does not change. If he were to experience some sort of bout of rage, that would have to put him in response to something else, reactionary, in effect. But God is outside of time. What is he reacting to? He sees all moments simultaneously. That is actually one of the reasons theologians give for why he can forgive your sin. Because when you sin, he can look outside of time at the same point he can look on the cross of Christ. Because those moments are the same in God's experience. There is no succession of moments because he is not outside of time. So if our emotions are reactions to that which happens around us, what would God feel? He is not reactionary. Again, we must resist the urge to make God like us only at a higher magnitude or with a greater intensity. And what does Jesus say? In our text this morning, because God is perfect, Jesus says we ought to strive for moral perfection. 
In effect, because everything I just told you is true of God, we must strive to be perfect, but we cannot be like God in his perfections. We cannot be all places at all times. We cannot be all-powerful. We cannot be eternal or infinite. What is the way in which God has made for us to be perfect? Jesus says we can strive to be morally perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And maybe you're thinking right now, first of all, uh, I can't do that. That was Jesus saying that. Right. Jesus lived morally perfect. You and I have not. To use the theological term, Jesus lived a sinless life. But he was able to do so by the power and resources that we have access to. In Philippians uh, 4, or 2, 4 through 8, it, said, it tells us that Jesus did not do moral perfection under his own divine power. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, taken hold of, taken advantage of. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and bound, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The phrase emptied himself doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God, the second person of the Trinity, ceased to be the Son of God. Rather, it means that when Jesus lived his morally perfect, sinless life here among men, he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own divine capabilities. And when Jesus lived and declared authority, he didn't declare his own authority, but he spoke, he did all that his Father had given him to do. You, dear brother and sister Christian, have that same Holy Spirit residing inside of you. Furthermore, if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe in the gospel, then you have been commissioned by the same authority. We here at Journey Church, we say that we exist to fulfill the Great Commission. We exist to make disciples and mature disciples to the glory of God. And what does Jesus tell us about that mission in the world? In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you. To the end, always to the end of the age. The same resources and authority which Jesus had when he walked this world. He has filled you with by sending the Holy Spirit, and he has given you when he commissioned you and told you, I will be with you always. I, the one in whom all authority and right and power exists, I am with you. So we are without excuse as we strive for moral perfection. We cannot simply write it off as impossible for us fallen sinful human beings. Jesus has given us that which we need. He's also given us a way to understand this perfection. In Matthew 5, 44 through 47, he gives us criteria for assessing how we are doing. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. What is the criteria Jesus gives us? That we love those who have positioned themselves towards us as enemies. If we can do that, we are nearing the perfection Christ has called us to. If we can see somebody who hates us and we can strive to love them, even bring them before God in prayer, asking God to do the best for them, not the imprecatory prayers like the Psalms where we ask God's judgment to rain down upon them and justice to be done, but rather that we ask that God do the greatest thing that he can do for them, that he win them to himself. In loving them like that, we near perfection. Notice, too, the rationale that he provides is drawn from the character of God. Does not God have those who hate him, who blaspheme his name, who curse and persecute his people, who live in abject denial of his authority and his desires, who violate his law every moment and every breath? And yet does God not care for them? In ways too many to count. Does the sun not rise on the evil simply because God loves them and desires it? Does the rain not nourish their ground, feed their crops, simply because God is good and he desires to do good to those whom he created? Does he not show his character and nature and goodness and beauty and grandeur and grace to them in manifold ways if only their eyes were open to see it? Since he is all that I have said that he is this morning and so, so much more. How much more when those slights against his character, his infinite being, how much more weighty are they than the things that we experience? I'm thankful to my, uh, my friend and our elder, Micah, who uh, he did a podcast recently uh, on salvation and stuff, which is his podcast, and he talked about St. Patrick or Patricus and how Patrick being ignited with the love of God the Father, had to take the message of the gospel to people who had imprisoned him. How Patrick, ignited by the love of God the Father, had to proclaim the gospel to those who showed him nothing but evil. Because Patrick understood who he was and who God was, who Christ was, he knew that all the injustice he experienced were what minor slights that could be forgiven against the injustice done to the character of an infinite God. The standard for us is moral perfection. To love those who hate us. To be totally honest, I fall woefully short of this. Again, thinking about Micah's podcast, he reminded me that very few of us actually have enemies. I don't struggle to love my enemies. Quite frankly, I struggle to love those who frustrate me. I struggle to keep my cool and temper and display the character of my God and Father when my children defy my will. 
and I tell you I love them from the core of my being. I struggle for those, I struggle with this when people would frustrate or stand in the way of my will and they are not my enemies. They're simply people trying to live and move and figure out how to function in a world that is broken and fallen. I struggle to love when all the thing that separates me from another person is simply poor communication, misunderstanding. It's hard for me to even fathom how Christ embodied this. Luke 23, 34 through 37. And God said, or Jesus said to them, this is while he is hanging on the cross, mind you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they, those whom he was speaking of, cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, if he is the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And Christ looks down from the cross. When every breath would be painful because it required him to shove himself up on spikes driven through his feet in order to lift the weight off of his chest so that he could take in the air, he still endured that pain simply to utter a prayer to his Father and ours. Forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. I find myself far too easily at the end of my rope with my kids, with my friends, with random drivers on the street. People who live blissfully unaware of my own self-importance. You might think, come on, don't be so hard on yourself, you're a pretty good guy. But let's not forget how this section of the Sermon on the Mount started. So my friend and our brother Kyle reminded us when he spoke on this passage. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We must not, brothers and sisters, relax the commands of Christ. We must exceed Exceed the mere righteousness and external conformity of the Pharisees. And how can we ever hope to do so? I think there's a hint in this text. Do you see the words, so that you may be sons of your Father, who is in heaven? This is the pathway to right relationship with God and to right relationship with, yes, our friends, but also our enemies that we would see God as our Father. The late theologian J.I. Packer said this, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his Father. But cannot this be said of every person, Christian or not? Emphatically, no. The idea that all are children of God is not found in the Bible anywhere. The Old Testament shows God as Father, not of all, but of his own people. 
the seed of Abraham. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Exodus 4, 22 through 23. The New Testament has a world vision, but it shows God as father, not of all, but of those who, knowing themselves to be sinners, put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their divine sin bearer and master. And so become Abraham's spiritual seed. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. To put this in biblical terms, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus' life, we find a righteousness that goes above, gets beneath, and extends beyond the law. In Jesus' death, is offered us the payment for our failures. We sinners, by nature and by choice, are in God's debt. Our account is in the red, and it grows increasingly so with each sin, whether by intention or by accident. We have been paying into a retirement count of God's wrath with each sin but in exchange for that account. Jesus offers his own righteous obedience. And in Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and regeneration, we are made alive and able to live in obedience to him, walking in a manner worthy of him. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit, such that Paul can write in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. A spirit of adoption. Nearly 500 years ago, a theologian obsessed with the fatherhood of God wrote this, For the pious mind realizes that the punishment of the impious and the wicked and the reward of life for the eternal righteousness are equally pertaining to God's glory. Meaning, heaven and hell both show us God's glory. And then he says, besides the mind, the pious mind, that's the mind that follows God, restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone. You, brother and sister Christian, do not strive to be holy and you do not resist temptation and sin because you should be afraid of hell. Brother Christian, that is not an option for you. Why does the mind restrain itself? Because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores Him as Lord. And even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending Him alone. Here indeed is pure and real religion, faith so joined with an earnest fear of God that this fear also embraces willing reverence and carries with it such legitimate worship as prescribed in the law. The obedience to the law does not come out of a fear of hell. It comes out of a love for your Father who is in heaven. So there we see it. This is our bottom line. The path of salvation and the path toward perfection is a path walked by the one adopted by God the Father. Let me go back to the parent I spoke of at the beginning. What, should, what could she do 
to separate herself from that God? Absolutely nothing. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because it was grace from the beginning. When God called you to follow him and to put your faith in Jesus Christ, he called you graciously, not because of anything in you. And when you struggled in the middle, it was him by his grace that sustained you, that reminded you of where you have come from and where you are going. Your faith, your hope, and your love are lifted up by the grace of God, not your will or strength. And when it all comes to an end, and the lights of your eyes dim, and your lungs crack with the final breaths, it will be God's grace which ushers you into your final home. It is, was, and has always been God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The very longing that that parent experienced for God. The very awareness of her sin and shortcoming is a sign that God is calling her, attempting to woo her, that he has bound her to himself in what we call the new covenant. Eli read for us earlier from Hebrews. I will read basically the same passage from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they, shall they teach one another his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Friends, Would you pray with me? Would you sing with me to our great and awesome God? A God unimaginable in grandeur and grace, transcendent and existing in himself, independent of all of creation. A God who brought this whole world into being, who sustain, sustains it by the sheer force of his will. And yet a God who bids us, come, and to call him Father. A God who has made a way for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, holy is your name. We need you. We worship you. You are all and everything to us. Lord, would you open, as I said at the beginning, our mouths and loose our tongues that we may sing of your majesty, sing of your grace, sing of your glory. 
would you open our hearts that we may know you more as Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the one by whom, whose blood we are adopted, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.